0: Hello and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $137 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise. High active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleague, Evan Bauman, Portfolio Manager of the Aggressive Growth and Multi-Cap Growth Strategies. And the topic of today's podcast is Anticipating Leadership Change in Today's Market. Evan, thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, it's good to see you, Jeff. Now, I want to start off with the most important question that everybody listening wants to know. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Is it going to be the Eagles or is it going to be the New England Patriots?
1: Well, as a lifelong Giants fan, I'll say that there's a way for
0: them both to lose that I would like to choose that. So (laughs)
1: that'll be my answer. I don't
0: don't really have a horse in this fight. You and 90 percent of America (laughs) feels exactly the same way. Um, But in all seriousness, I I think it's important that uh, we talk about something that's been going on over the last couple of years, which is the shift in leadership between growth and value. You know, if you think about the last couple of years, it's been polarizing. 2016, once we saw oil bottomed, obviously value led for majority of that year. Culminating with the top being a couple months after Trump's election, a lot of pro-growth expectations there. Obviously, it's been tech's time in the sun uh, for roughly the next 11 months. And you've seen a little bit of a change of leadership here in late 2017, back to value, obviously, with tax reform being the catalyst. Uh, Tech has has lagged a little bit here today. And uh, do you think that this is a temporary blip or do you think that this is something a little bit more long term over the next uh, year, year and a half?
1: Yeah, so, you know, just as a refresher for clients and, and customers who aren't as familiar with the strategy, I think we look at things on a very long-term basis. And a lot of the companies that we own today, we've owned for for years, if not decades. Um, so when you talk growth versus value, I think we look at things a little bit differently. In our strategy, we define the market as defined by value stocks and overvalued stocks, i.e. we're looking for companies that are growing, uh, obviously growing sustainably and meaningfully over long periods of time, but we're trying not to overpay for them. So companies that are increasing their intrinsic value over years, uh, generating a lot of cash. And then again, our, our, our goal is to find companies that are really mispriced or undervalued in the market. So as you said, I mean, growth clearly did well. Up until the very end of last year, it kind of led for the last few years, but it was very limited in terms of what was driving uh, that outperformance of growth versus value. like the mega cap stocks, it was mega caps, it was tech, it was internet, it was a lot of the big, st- the big stuff. In fact, the biggest companies in the indices, in the benchmarks, in the market were really the leaders, and I think we'll talk about kind of what and why. But what that left was a lot of very undervalued parts of the growth space. So. Um, when you look at kind of the way that December played out and the way that this year has started, some groups, which even though the market was at all-time highs, have traded down to meaningful discounts to the S&P. Actually, in some cases, um, industries or subsectors like biotech and healthcare in general, uh, media, were actually trading at uh, historically low valuation levels. So I think we're starting to get a normalization of that, um, whereas the big tech and internet names clearly got very crowded towards the end of last year. Due to money flow into passive and some of the dynamics, I'm sure we'll cover it again. I think we're starting to see through M&A and just, just right-sizing valuations, um, more of a normalization in the market, a broadening out different leadership groups. And as money starts to flow towards some of those groups, I
0: think you're starting to see valuations get back to, uh, to historical norms. Yeah, everybody, when they talk about IT, they think that all of IT is expensive um but you're right it's just a handful of companies that have been leading that charge by far and away for for most of 2017
1: yeah and it's 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 a different type of complacency in tech i mean when you, when you look at the last 20 or 30 years we had a bubble back in the late 90s in it stocks that was the last time that technology as a sector made up this percentage of the s&p this percentage of the russell growth benchmarks which is almost 40% right now in technology. And it's really five stocks. Five stocks make up over 20% of the benchmark, which when I talk crowding again, this is not the same type of bubble that we had 20 years ago where you had internet and telecom and tech stocks trading at astronomical valuations. These are all great companies. It's really just a question of money starting to um, flood out of some of those mega caps, six, seven, $800 billion companies into some other parts of the market. And as uh, you made reference to, I think, relatively speaking, some of those companies are getting expensive, but nowhere near the levels that
0: they were at, you know, 20 plus years ago. Which means that you can have a slow deflating of those valuations into some more reasonable parts of the market, but it's not necessarily enough to crash the market, have the same effect as what we saw in, in late 99, early 2000.
1: Yeah, it could be a little bit like 2000 in that that was a year where our portfolios were actually up meaningfully on an absolute and and certainly on a relative basis versus growth they were up you know 40 to 60% wow ahead of the market and again that was a period when you looked at the broad market it was overvalued again in hindsight the S&P was trading almost 40 times earnings a lot of companies which had no business model in in, in internet and tech trading it at, at, you know, monstrous market caps, which you don't have today. Just added .com at the end of their name. Yeah, it was, it, <laughs> and there's some pockets of that starting to develop. But what was interesting back then is the prevailing sentiment in the market was very euphoric. I mean, a good GDP number, a good CPI number and the market would would rally 3 to 4% on, you know, seemingly meaningless uh, macro numbers. You had a ton of money coming into the market. So, Valuations were very expensive. You don't have that today. There's fear almost everywhere, except for that pocket of uh, mega cap and internet names where I think there's more complacency than overwhelmingly bullishness. But you clearly have a lot of fear and a lot of negativity in some other parts of the market that I would argue is overstated. And so again, you're just starting to get a normalization of some of that
0: and I, I think there is uh, a lot of fear out there. I mean, anecdotally, I travel all around the country. I meet with a lot of different levels of investors from institutional down to end clients. And I can tell you being in the ninth year of this bull market, you just don't see this level of skepticism right now.
1: It's almost, it's, it's somewhere between skepticism and fear and disgust. I think part of it is a lot of investors have missed the move. I mean, you're you're nine years, as you said, nine years into the bull market. This feels like the first time that you're actually starting to see some panic buying um, into the market. We've had kind of an exponential move up in the early part of this year in, in some areas. And the market itself is up you know, 6 7% in a very short period of time. But realistically, I think a lot of, a lot of investors have missed the move. Um, the only place, again, outside of general tech and internet where you feel maybe a level of safety is passive. And I've been saying for some time that the risk is this rising perception, that passive is risk-free. And if you get into an environment like 2000, where the market as a broad market actually drops and certain companies you can make a lot of money in, but I think you might be setting up for a similar type of dynamic or simply putting money into passive, simply owning the market, particularly when you have such you know relative overvaluation in, in the big stuff. I think could be very dangerous. And that's that's not just the U.S. dynamic. I think it's it's the sentiment around the world is if you're going to buy the U.S., there's no reason to own active because passive has done so well. Right. But I think that's very backward looking sentiment.
0: If you think about passive investing, it's basically a momentum strategy, right? The more money that comes in, you're just buying the larger and larger companies, like a lot of the the megatech names that you mentioned. And because it keeps going up, it's a positive feedback loop where more people will put more money in passive, inevitably making it go up. But I think the one thing that we haven't seen in quite some time is a pullback, a meaningful pullback, where active management, that that, uh, adherence to risk, looking at balance sheets, the bulletproof of a, a potential company um hasn't come into play. And I, I think as we move towards an environment with more volatility, I, I think active uh, will come back very much in the favor. Yeah, the
1: very definition of a crowd is what you've made reference to. In other words, up stocks make you feel smart, right? You watch stocks go up every day and you could look at some companies without mentioning specifics that nobody wanted to own when they were trading at $40 or $50 a share, that now north of $1,000 a share, there's this sense of safety and the sense that, well, there's liquidity because they're big companies. And and as you said, I think so much of the last couple of years has been due to money flow uh, 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 as opposed to necessarily fundamentals. In other words, the fundamentals are used to justify the stock price movement. But if you just watch where the money has been going and where it's been coming from, it's been going to passive, trillions of dollars going to passive. And it probably will continue to simply because it's worked um, until it doesn't. And then money coming out of healthcare funds, you know, tens of billions of dollars coming out of healthcare funds after a correction, uh, money coming out of energy. And, and at the same time, when you look at investors who manage to a benchmark, in other words, they, they set their sector weightings based on relative weightings. They're buying more tech every quarter because tech keeps going up. They're selling healthcare, which continues to come down in the growth uh, benchmarks at the exact time. Where healthcare companies are flush with cash, M and A is accelerating. There's actually been, you know, in the last few few weeks. There's almost a deal announced today, big deals.
0: Um, a think lot of that, that being, 30, 30 billion or so so far this year. Yeah,
1: and two more today. I mean, there's there's big stuff being announced, and it's just the beginning. I think of again that normalization process. But if you watched energy stocks, for example, towards the end of. Last year, when there was a tremendous amount of tax loss selling and oil prices were going up, but oil, oil equities were underperforming, it's because a lot of money was coming out of energy. A lot of people, investors, were selling energy stocks because it was the only part of the market that had losses. Sure. So they were taking them at the end of the year institutionally in October, November, and then you know retail in, in the early part of December. Um, and money was just going again towards what was working. And We're very contrarian in how we manage our portfolios. We might look foolish for a month or two or even a year or two, but if we own undervalued companies, when that rotation occurs, the same thing you described in terms of a positive feedback loop, if you start to reverse that, particularly in an area that's crowded and where liquidity could be actually surprisingly uh, less than than some people are, are giving it credit for could happen pretty violently. It could, could be a pretty sharp reversal into some of these under, under-owned
0: and undervalued sectors. You brought up energy, and energy has been one of my kind of bullish feelings for the last three months, and we've seen energy re-rate here over the last call it, month or so. Um, I, I think energy right now is underinvested, uh, quite frankly. And if you look at energy and its weighting in the S&P 500, when it's been below 6% over the last 30 years, the following three-year returns on a relative basis uh, was up 30% and 92%. Um, so with energy obviously hitting 6% here recently, that would bode well for more than likely its its future performance and and what it will do relative to the markets. Um, if you look at energy, obviously, at the end of every market cycle since the 1970s, it's outperformed. And I think we're starting to see that happen right here. But the energy stocks have lagged a little bit. I know oil has moved up. Um, energy stocks haven't participated what are your feelings there do you do you think that we'll see that catch up? yeah, it's happening you know starting starting already this year
1: um to your point if you look at the Russell growth benchmarks, it's less than one percent energy. Wow, so you've got this real crowding in big cap tech, you've got under ownership in healthcare and almost nothing in energy where we actually have a sizable portion, about ten percent of our portfolios in well capitalized top tier energy independence and service companies so yeah I mean i I really When we look for investment ideas, we're looking for these really out of favor areas that have really good opportunities to grow cash flows. And in this environment, with oil prices now trading in the mid 60s, Mm -hmm. um, these companies are generating significant amounts of cash flow, in many cases, free cash flow. It's another area that potentially could consolidate. If you look at the dynamics, they're not unlike what's happening in some other parts of the market where the majors, the big companies, are flush with cash flush with b- borrowing power, have been only focused on preserving their dividends for the last couple of years. But potentially, you could get companies like Exxon, Total, or Chevron saying it's a lot cheaper right now to buy assets in the public markets than to go out, spend, and drill for them in areas like the shales in the Permian and in, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, even overseas. So the dynamic is such that you know earlier last year, I guess in the May, June, July timeframe, oil prices retrenched back to the 40s. And oil price equities or oil equities across the board traded down to almost where they were in the early part of 2016, when balance sheets were you know much more in, in uh, disarray. You had companies that were just holding on to cash. What last year's dynamic caused is companies to actually focus more on cash flow and returns and actually be able to cut costs in their business and generate significant amounts of cash at a $50 oil uh, level. Let alone a sixty-five to seventy dollar oil range where we are right now. Of so course. I think industry dynamics again are much healthier than they were two years ago. I think there's a real overlay in oil price equities. Either the market's gonna figure out that, you know, companies are not gonna outspend cash flow, they're not gonna worry just about production growth at the expense of shareholders, they're really gonna focus on good capital returns. And when that happens, either you get the majors starting to take advantage of, of the disconnect and make acquisitions, or the market just starts to re-rate these companies higher. Plus, you've had a tremendous amount of CapEx deferred just because of the crash in oil prices over the previous three years. So on the service side, companies are making small private acquisitions. They're improving their technology pipelines. Um, They're improving their businesses and waiting for that next upcycle. And when it occurs, they're going to be a lot more profitable than they would have been
0: otherwise. Well, people forget that there's a boom-bust cycle in commodities that happens, and it'll always happen again. Um, you invest too much, you have too much supply coming on once and it overwhelms demand. And then, of course, then you have too much supply, people shut her down and they don't invest for the future. And then you just sowing the seeds for the next boom and bust. The irony of that is I think people forget that IT in a lot of cases is cyclical.
1: And that's when I talk about, you know, should, should technology be 40% of a benchmark? Should the big tech companies, which all compete against each other, be trading at eight, 900000000000 dollars Market caps. I I don't know the answer to that except to say that I think during bull markets in tech, and this again goes back to the 98, 99 example, people forget that technology is very competitive. It's very cyclical. It's essentially deflationary. And it doesn't mean that there won't be companies which have the types of barriers to entry and patentability that we look for. But I think that um, in many cases, that's a sector that ultimately can be much more cyclical than than investors.
0: uh, Give it credit for. So you know, you talked about uh, technology being broad-based, cyclical. I know your exposure is a lot different, more different than the benchmark. Specifically, a lot of those mega-cap names that that we mentioned. Um, tell me a little bit about the, the the composition of your tech holdings.
1: Yeah, it looks very different from your household names. I mean, we've never owned Apple, Google, or Amazon, for better or worse. You know, we're we're again, if we're going to own a technology company, for the exact reasons I just defined about tech being very cyclical and, and deflationary. We're going to make sure we either find very unique business models where there's limited or no competition, or we're going to underpay. And so if you look at what we own in storage, companies which today trade less than 10 times earnings, which are providing a lot of the storage for big data, for the cloud, and a lot of the big growth markets that some of those other companies like Amazon um, and Microsoft are benefiting from but we're paying seven or eight times earnings as opposed to much higher multiples.
0: Seven, eight times earnings in this market is, is pretty rare. Yeah, so
1: they're still out there, you know, names in the software space where there's some sort of, again, unique competitive advantage, whether it's a Citrix or an Autodesk. So the, the names that we own are going to look very, very vastly different from the benchmark. I think it's the rising complacency and capitulation trade almost going on in IT is a bit
0: concerning, but there's some still some stuff to like there. Now, do you see a lot of M&A coming into IT over the course of the year?
1: Yeah. I mean, the dynamics that are going to impact the healthcare and media spaces, i.e. repatriation, lower taxes, balance sheets are in great shape. And, and I think what investors lost sight of with all the tax reform debate and healthcare reform debate was that throughout much of last year, nothing got done. So there was... You know, the the hopes of healthcare reform didn't happen. Then there was the hopes earlier in the year of tax reform didn't happen. So companies, in many cases, were just hoarding cash. They were generating a ton. Um, Rates were low, so they were using debt to to do acquisitions and borrowing against overseas cash if they wanted to do something. But now you have a case where companies are bringing back hundreds of billions of dollars of cash, Um, you know, paying a minimal tax, a mid-teens tax rate on it. And they can actually budget again, right? Knowing what tax rules- Have that visibility. Have the visibility, right, to bring back the cash, to have lower taxes, generating massive amounts of free cash flow. And then, you know, they're looking to accelerate growth. I mean, so where you've seen deals and it's actually been relatively slow in tech, but watch out, I think, when you start to see what happens in healthcare with this kind of domino effect, once a deal or two get announced, it tends to bring on a whole bunch more. I think, yeah, I think it's very likely- that you're going to have private equity money swirling, you're going to have companies looking for accretive acquisitions. And remember, you're also in a very deregulatory environment again. So bigger deals, Um, antitrust is not really an issue. And so I think, yeah, I think the likelihood is the story of 2018, aside from just being new leadership, is going to be M&A waves that I, I don't think certain sectors of the market are prepared for.
0: I think you're absolutely right. If you think about repatriation, there's about $3 trillion locked up abroad. Yep. About 1.2, 1.3, of that's liquid. So as that comes home, corporate managers can do one of four things with it. They can invest in CapEx, which I think we're going to get, increase their dividends, share buybacks, and then last but not least, M&A activity. And given where we are in the cycle, M&A activity is typically picked up once you're in the later innings.
1: I think you're seeing a little bit of everything or maybe a lot of everything. I don't. I don't think... With the amount of free cash flow these companies are generating, it doesn't have to be now one over the other. It's what I referenced with the majors in the oil space. It was all about dividends because they basically had a limited amount of cash to spend. They, were, they didn't want to outspend what they were bringing in. But when you look at the numbers, it's, it's not only the hundreds of billions coming back, but it's the ability of companies now to generate massive amounts of free cash flow. They can increase dividends. They can buy back stock. They can build. And higher, which, again, is part and parcel to what, you know, from a, from a PR perspective, you want to see. Um, but the M&A component, again, if you can do deals and buy companies at valuations cheaper than yours, growing faster than your own base business, you, you basically make up, you know, for the deal right away. And so we've seen in an area like healthcare where, where companies like Celgene and, and Sanofi Aventis have done two and three deals in a couple of weeks. It's not just one off these are no longer one off transactions, and these are no longer you know deals that are being financed just with debt this is
0: this is again cash being
1: returned to shareholders in a lot of different ways well, and I
0: think biotech, if you look at last week um starting to to outperform on a relative basis off the good results of Amgen and Biogen,
1: yeah, the results were good. The reaction to the news, uh, as my partner Richie always likes to say, it's the reaction to the news, not just the news and you know, the quarters were good. Clearly, these are again, companies which are benefiting from tax reform, and I think a much healthier pricing environment than, than investors had feared. But I think here again, you have a sector that when the bull market in biotech was at its peak in early 15, growth investors all overweighted biotech. 90% of growth investors were overweight biotech three years ago. Today, it's 14% of the benchmark. Nobody's looking at Healthcare as a growth industry because of all these headline risks uh, that were abounding over the last couple of years about reimbursement and pricing, and yet companies that are innovative, so companies that are finding novel means to treat disease. So think about big unmet needs on a global basis, you know, whether it's cancer or neurology, where you have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and ALS, among other major disease classes that have no efficacious treatments, um, You know, rare disease or, or rare inherited genetic disorders where 90 to 95% of those still go untreated in the global markets today and you're paying 14 times earnings for again businesses that are yes there's some binary nature to companies that are trying to bring a drug through the pipeline but you're you're paying 13 or 14 times today's base business earnings for growth for optionality in the pipelines and it's a really undervalued underowned area in my opinion so Yeah, if you're Pfizer or you're Roche or you're I referenced Sanofi or you know some of the other big pharma companies that are sitting on boatloads of cash, that are selling drugs into me-too competitive kind of markets and are looking for the next big thing, the next big leg of growth, it's a lot cheaper for you to go and buy a a big profitable biotech with the pipeline associated with it than to try to figure out you know how to spend billions of dollars on R and D and get there in ten years.
0: Um. Oh, let's not forget, uh, biotech is cheap, trading cheaper than uh, big pharma right now, which is rare. First time ever. Yeah, I think it's the first time ever. And
1: we've you know we invested in the sector. We've invested in the sector going back to the eighties. I mean, we've owned a lot of these companies for decades. And yeah, historically, you go back twenty years, this, this, the, the the science was strong, but none of these companies were profitable. Very few were generating any kind of cash. Today, a company like Biogen will generate north of twenty five dollars per share of earnings and actually right now has six drugs in their pipeline to treat Alzheimer's disease. So it doesn't mean they're all going to work. And obviously, I've said before, unmet needs like Alzheimer's are unmet, unmet for a reason, i.e. a lot of drugs have failed in that space, and billions of dollars will need to be spent. But if they are able to find a treatment for even a portion of the disease population on a worldwide basis, it could be,
0: again, just just upside optionality to the story. Well, oh, Everybody's concerned about competition drug prices ratcheting down. But again, if Biogen comes out with something that can actually treat Alzheimer's, um, I don't think drug price regulation is necessarily in the conversation there.
1: Yeah, I mean, companies that were selling, again, markets or drugs into very competitive markets should not have been raising price 50, 100, 500% on old existing drugs. Generic drugs serve a purpose. But what you had was such overwhelmingly negative sentiment towards the group, that the innovators uh, were penalized along with the companies that were selling into competitive markets. When you listen to the new head of FDA, Scott Gottlieb, talk, he wants to bring drugs to market sooner rather than later for these innovators, for the companies that are finding treatments for disease that are safe and efficacious in areas where there's nothing on the market. And those are the types of businesses that we try to buy, companies like Vertex or even Ionis or Biogen, which are finding these treatments for, uh, for the big unmet needs out there.
0: Yeah, and I think obviously one thing that doesn't get mentioned because everybody's very myopic and want to focus on the next quarter is the graying of America. You have 10,000 baby boomers retiring t- every day for the next 15 years. And that's not only here in the U.S., but it's around the globe and the, the rest of the developed world. And I, that's a pretty big tailwind to the sector. And if you you look at the the last uh, consumer expenditure at survey, healthcare accounts for about 12.9% of the spending in the 65 plus age group. And if you look at all the other groups combined, it's 6.6%. So with the graying of America, people spending more of their income on healthcare, um, that, that's a nice tailwind for earnings and and long-term secular growth.
1: Yeah. And you, you glossed over something else important, the investing for next quarter. I mean, obviously we're investing for the next 10 to 20 years. And, and I think that the two things that I would find concerning is how short time horizons have gotten. When investors invest today, you're right. They want to buy something where the quarter is going to be great and they want to find something for tomorrow. Um, You know, I think we've always had a saying that sometimes if you own the great businesses longer term, they're going to become great stocks. It doesn't happen overnight when you're contrarian and you're buying a sector that's out of favor, but you're underpaying for it, you're going to get monetized either in the market or over time in, in the market or, or by other companies, as we talked about through M&A, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and so I think the shortening of time horizons, along with this idea of benchmarking, this idea of trying to manage to a benchmark for relative results is very, very difficult. You're essentially creating that same momentum type market where you're buying the stuff that's up, you're buying buying the names that are increasing in the bench, and you're selling the names that are undervalued and, and that are coming down in the benchmark. And we're doing just the opposite. We're buying companies that are undervalued relative to their intrinsic value of the cash flows that are growing. But again, you have to have conviction in this environment where you get graded quarter after quarter, year after year versus something. So we compared the Russell 3000 growth but we look wildly different from the Russell 3000 growth. You
0: have a high active share. You're yeah, not correlated.
1: Yeah, it's almost 100%. I mean, so active share being zero, you, you look exactly like the bench. 100, you're completely different. We're in the high 90s. So we're, you know, we're serving a purpose. We're, we're clearly going to have very uncorrelated type results from the market for better or worse.
0: And I would argue being this late in the market cycle, um, with obviously all the momentum that the indices have had, that's going to be a tailwind. I think I'd
1: clearly like to
0: believe so. I think the year has started out
1: in an encouraging way where it's, again, the market's broadening out. You're having sectors like media, which is another area going through a major wave of consolidation, right? If you looked at the programmers, you'd say, gosh, I guess Netflix is going to take the business away from everybody, from the AMCs and discoveries of the world, all of the, the Liberty companies. There'll be only one company left, and it's going to be Netflix, maybe Amazon as well. But there's real pricing power, and there's real undervaluation in some of the underlying distributors, um, I should say, the underlying content and programming companies, uh, like a Discovery, which is mer- merging with Scripps, trading at seven times free cash flow, uh, or an AMC Networks, which is about a $2 billion uh, company versus Netflix, at a, I guess it's about a $100 billion company. Where they have a number of the top programs that are streamed over the top, over Netflix, over Amazon, and over some of the other streaming services like Hulu, or and, and the traditional distributors. So a lot of volatility in the market. I mean, we try to take advantage of you know when you have these short-term moves, we try to take advantage of that by either dollar-cost averaging in or taking some profits. But I mean, to me, media is another example of just an area where you've had crowding into a couple of names at, at the expense of some others that are looking really inexpensive. And John Malone's been a consolidator over the last 25 years uh, plus. And I think he's going to continue to create value for his shareholders through these types of, of uh, scale creating mergers and ultimately acquisitions.
0: Well, great. Well, well, Evan, that's all the time that we have here for today. Um, thank you very much for for joining me here in the studio. My pleasure, Jeff. It was fun. And uh, look forward to having you back in, in 2019 to, to revisit all of the predictions we had this year and, and talk about next year. Sounds great. Thanks. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of January 29, 2018 and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the use of this information.